Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Uh, we're actually starting next week our sermon series on 2 Corinthians, so this is going to serve as sort of a intro as well as a uh, conclusion to our thematic series on all things new. We're going to be speaking this morning about uh, the new creation, how we are new creatures in Christ. Um, but we'll also give a little bit of ba- background material as well to help understand where this passage fits in its context. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Hear the word of the Lord. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us by faith to hold on to the very words that we've just read. Pray, Father, that we would not process our own experiences through the mindset of this world, that we would not process them through Uh, the words of the devil, that we would not process them according to our own failures, but according to what you have promised us will be a success. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the spiritual realm this day. Pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. There are a number of uh, accounts throughout history of individuals who were presumed to be dead later revealing themselves to be alive at their own funerals, to the, usually the great shock and horror of the mourners who were in attendance that day. Sometimes it was merely a bad judgment call by the uh, medical professionals, uh, hastily giving a certificate of death, only later to have that same individual moving around in the casket at their own funeral. In other cases, these extraordinary events occurred usually because of a false report of some kind or maybe a ruse by someone seeking to hide from the law, pretending to be dead, but they weren't, and had a funeral in their stead. And sometimes uh, it was a case of mistaken identity. In other words, uh, sometimes it was somebody else's body in the casket that looked like the one who was thought to be dead but was not them, was rather someone who was their, uh, their replica, if you will. Death is a pretty big deal, as you No, you'd think that a little bit more careful consideration would be given before pronouncing that someone is dead when they're not and getting the facts straight before uh, ruining some of these stories. But it does happen often. In fact, you look it up, there's just hundreds of stories, even just in the last few years during the COVID season, many people were pronounced dead that weren't dead and vice versa. But I read an interesting report the other day about a 67-year-old man named Ron Rader Uh, in England who had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And when he went in for one of his follow-up appointments, the surgeon told him that pretty much uh, his cancer was inoperable and that they were going to transition him to palliative care. And instead of being fearful or or weeping over the news, Ron immediately turned to his kids with a big smile and he said, I want to put on a party. And he said, if, if there's going to be a funeral and there's going to be people who are coming, I want to be there. I don't want to miss out on that. And so he convinced his family to hold what's called a living funeral in celebration of his life. And on that appointed day, 350 people came to his house and went through all of the rituals of a funeral procession. They read everything as if he were already dead and did all those things and then talked about his life and then talked about the hope 
of the resurrection, et cetera. And you can imagine it was a very emotional time. Everyone in the room was, you know, teary-eyed and, and yet also uh, very glad to see that he was still there. Nine days later, he died in his home, surrounded by his family. Well, in, in our passage this morning, um, if you were to rewrite it as if it were a newspaper article, it would be sort of a combination of an obituary and a birth announcement all rolled into one. In fact, it would be a celebration of life, but not in reference to the person who died, but rather concerning the new person who has come into this world. And in a very strange way, both of those accounts refer to the same person. And that's the marvel of what Paul is telling us this morning in our passage, that there's both a dead man and a newborn baby all wrapped up into one. But since we're actually starting our study of 2 Corinthians next week, I figured I'd give you a little bit of background to help understand where these verses fit in context of what Paul's greater argument is here uh, in this epistle. But know that for the sermon today, I'm actually taking the passage out of context to apply it to ourselves specifically. Uh, this wasn't his original tense. I'll, I'll explain that uh, before we get into it. But it, it's uh, in this very brief topical sermon series that we have entitled All Things New, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how we have a new king, King Jesus, no longer under the dominion of the devil. We now also are a part of a new community, the Church of Christ. We're no longer part of this world the way that we once were. And now this morning, I want to talk about how we now are new creatures or a new creation in Christ, that we are not the man or the woman that we were before. But as I've already said, Paul's actual argument here is not primarily how we see ourselves, but how we see others uh, who are in Christ Jesus. For the impetus of his argument stems from what his detractors were saying about him. So 2 Corinthians is a second letter. He's writing to the same church. And in the second letter, he has more opposition than even he did in the first letter that he wrote. And later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, uh, he writes that uh, some were saying that his letters sounded as if they were very weighty and strong, uh, but in, uh, in reality, face-to-face, in his bodily presence, they said that he was rather weak and that his speech was of no account whatsoever. So they're judging him based upon his old self, if you will. They're basing him upon his outward appearance. As many of you know, the apostle, uh, his, his name, uh, the apostle Paul, his Hebrew name is Saul, right? Uh, and he's still called by that later on. It's not as if he uh, went from Saul to Paul. He's called that throughout uh, in, throughout the book of Acts and, and, and other places as well. He, is, he has both names, but basically his Hebrew name, when he's around Jews, mainly he's known as Saul, but when he's in that more Roman Greek context, he also goes by the name Paulus. And Paulus, uh, the definition at least in, in the Greek, uh, gives this sense of a, of a humble person or a person who is a, sort of a minor character, if you will, uh, in, in the sense that um, think of a James, for instance. Uh, how many disciples do we know that are named James? Well, first of all, you have James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? Then you also have James, the brother of John, who is one of the three in the inner circle of Jesus, if you will. But then you also have the third one, who most people don't know as well, who is called James, the son of Alphaeus. Anybody favorite disciple, James, son of Alphaeus? Well, in fact, he's actually known as James the Lesser because he's not as well known, but it's the same meaning as Paulus. It's 
the one who is the lesser one, the humble one, the minor one, if you will. So it, it, it's a good name for a Christian to say, well, you know, I'm not the main character here. I'm, I'm the lesser one. I'm pointing you to Christ, if you will. But at the same time, some of his detractors were using his name against him because the name can also mean small and short and of someone who's of no account. And so they're basically saying, you speak big in your letters, but when we see you're just a short little guy who has no intimidation whatsoever, and you can't, uh, uh, you have no authority, basically, is what their point is here. And they're judging him according to the flesh, if you will. So in response to this very unflattering evaluation, he admits that he himself once judged people in this manner. He also made these types of worldly evaluations. He would size people up according to their outward physique. He would size them up according to their intelligence, according to their wealth and their influence, and, and any other type of worldly standard. Uh, in fact, James warns us against doing this very thing. In his epistle, if you remember, he tells us, uh, don't. He, he basically rebukes the church that when the rich man comes into the sanctuary, immediately uh, wants to give him the best seat in the house. Uh, but then when the poor man comes, he treats them with disdain and, and lets him sit on the floor at his feet. He says, don't do that. You're still judging according to worldly standards. Of course, James is not saying that we should be deferential to poor people instead of to rich people, but that we shouldn't be using the standard at all. That's his point. And uh, in fact, I think some of you might remember uh, there was a commercial out maybe a couple years ago. I don't know if it's still on now. But it was some sort of investment banking type of commercial. And their point was that we treat all our customers the same. And uh, when a customer would come into this firm, they would have a, a number that you could see above their head. You know, It was a digital number of how much money they had invested in their retirement account. And some would have you know, maybe tens of thousands. Some would have maybe tens of millions above their, above their head. And the point was that most firms will treat you differently based upon how much you've invested, but they assure you that they will not. Hopefully, that's the case. But certainly in the church of Christ, we shouldn't be looking at one another based upon how much money we have or how much influence we have uh, in, in that sort of sense. And so James, as I said, is making a, a, a pretty grave point of not judging according to worldly standards. Uh, in that sense. But we, we judge each other in so many other ways, not just in terms of wealth and influence and things of that nature. There was a, a couple years ago, we actually had a presbytery meeting that took place here in this sanctuary. And one of the uh, pastoral uh, candidates to our presbytery, at least, uh, was sharing about the story in which David uh, was being chosen uh, to be the king, to, uh, that Samuel was going to anoint him to be king. But before we got to David, if you remember, he goes through all the brothers, and Samuel assumes it has to be the oldest brother because he's this tall and handsome guy, right? And uh, ultimately they are told that that's not supposed to be the standard by which they judge them. But I thought it was funny because the, uh, the, the pastoral candidate was making the point again and again that God doesn't often choose the tall and handsome guy. And this was a very short guy who was giving this. So I thought maybe he has a Napoleonic complex. I don't know. So on the floor of Presbyterian, I just stood up and I said, well, sometimes God does choose tall and handsome men too, you know, in that regard. And, I, I, of course, I said it, you know, tongue-in-cheek, the whole bit, but uh, at the same manner. I say the same thing to you, but it, it, the whole point is we're always judging one another in that way and that if we're not what the other person is, we sort of look down on that person even if they're taller than us. But we have that tendency. We're always judging according to outward standards. And Paul's saying, you're wasting your time. Not only does it not help you, it doesn't help others, but it also 
it, it hardens your heart to the gospel and hardens your heart to each other. It's just not helpful. And so Paul here is warning the Corinthians against using any of these types of worldly standards because by doing so, you're not only diminishing the man, Paul, you're also diminishing his message, pointing you to Christ. And, and they're missing Christ because they got caught up with these worldly standards. And so in the latter part of verse 16, Paul himself even admits that he used to use these worldly standards, and it's because he used these standards, that's why he persecuted Christ. And that's why he persecuted Christ's people, because in his mind, he honestly thought that Christ was a weakling and a fool. He honestly believed that Christ was a heretic, because there's no way he could be the Messiah, because he didn't conform to his outward standards of what the Messiah ought to look like. And so, as a result, he misses the gospel and ends up killing all those who would promote it. And so he's saying, now my detractors are doing the same thing. And that's the great irony of the matter here, is that Paul was this one judging Christ for his outward standards, and now Paul himself is being judged in the same way. And you would think that Paul might be tempted then to say something like, well, you know, I'm actually pretty strong. I'm, I'm wise. You can compete with me, you know, in that sense. But instead, you'll find out later on in this epistle, it's one of my favorite passages in all of Paul's epistles, he doesn't bother to try to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not weak. He begins to boast in his weaknesses and says, I boast in them because now the, the power of Christ rests upon me. So again, he just turns those worldly standards upside down and says, stop judging in that way altogether. It's not helpful because now the standard by which we ought to be judged is the standard of Christ in me. And that makes a world of a difference, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So that's a little bit of the, the background, if you will, to the verse. But I want us to consider verse 17. When Paul uses it in the third person of how we judge one another, I actually want to look at it from the perspective of how do we judge ourselves. And I don't think that's an unfair way of handling this passage, given the fact that he does it in so many other passages. I'm really just using this passage, again, to kill two birds, if you will. One is to give you a prelude for what the sermon series will be coming next week, but also because he specifically refers to the believer as a new creation here. It goes along with this theme. In other places, he'll say, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There are many other passages where he references the same thing, the same doctrine, and yet he doesn't call it emphatically the way he does here. So I'm saying I want us to read verse 17 in this way. If not if, if anyone is in Christ, but if I am in Christ, I am a new creation. The old person, the old man who is me, has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, as I mentioned to you in the beginning of the sermon, really if this were a news article, it would be there's an obituary that immediately leads to a new birth announcement. And all of this hinges on this very important phrase that Paul uses 25 times in his epistle, and that's the phrase, in Christ. That it makes all the difference if someone is in Christ. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In fact, as soon as he says in Christ, it's like, boom, new creation. That's the way he sees it. There's no delay. There's no distinction. It's just immediately there's a power, there's a life, there's a new principle at work here that never existed before. But now, for someone who's in Christ, it's entirely changed. To be in Christ is not merely another way of saying someone is a Christian, but it's also a, a way of saying that 
Now my identity is so wrapped up in Christ Jesus that my whole life is no longer lived for myself, but now is lived for someone else. And because of my union with him in his works, in his perfections, not only am I justified before the Father based upon his work, but now I also am beginning a new process through the power of the Spirit of being conformed to that person, conformed to Christ. Because of my union with him, it changes everything. When we place our faith in Christ, we are identifying ourselves with Christ in a number of things. We are identifying ourselves with Christ in his death, his life first, but in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and even his seating at the right hand of the Father. He says even now, Paul sees us as being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, as if it has already all happened, it's already been accomplished, we've already obtained the victory. All of this has occurred because of our union with Christ Jesus. So in other words, look at it this way, if Christ has died for sin, then that means we have died to sin. If he has been buried, we have been buried. If he has been raised, we have been raised to a new life as a new creature. In the same way, he who has ascended, we have ascended, and now we already have our minds and our citizenship in heaven. This is the very essence of the gospel, that great exchange that I talked about last week, that our sin is credited to Christ, that he becomes sin on the cross. And at the same time, his righteousness is then credited to us to where we are now perfect in Christ. When God looks at us, he sees a righteous holy, godly saint. And because of that, because he pays the penalty for our sin, we receive the reward of his righteousness. That's all through our union with Christ by faith. Thus, to be right with God, to spend an eternity with God in heaven, it cannot be based upon our works, which will never be enough, which will always be evil, but has to be based upon the righteous works of Christ through our union with him by faith. Faith alone. Every day of your life, it's always going to be based upon, am I in Christ or am I not? Am I in Christ, then I know I'm saved. That's it. You know, I passed another sign yesterday. Same road where that big love sign was that I passed last week. This time at preschool. And I loved it. It's just simply, uh, I don't go on that road very often, so when I do, I pay attention to the signs, apparently. It simply says, teaching ABCs and one, two, threes. Pretty straightforward, right? Uh, what else do you want from a preschool? Teaching ABCs, one, two, threes, and don't abuse our kids. We're good, right? But if I were to put a sign out in front of our church explaining our philosophy here, it would simply be teaching the simple gospel and all that that entails. What does that mean for us? How does that affect us? How does that help us? What difference does it make in our lives that we understand the gospel of Christ? The gospel is so important that to make any progress in the Christian faith, we have to get the gospel right. If we don't get the gospel right, we miss everything. In fact, it's interesting for all of those of you who have been going through the Bible study with us in small group for Galatians, you just misunderstand just a little bit, and it changes your whole trajectory and your Christian walk, and to where you really mess up a lot of things if you don't get this concept. So I, I want to make sure that we 
continue to get this. Of course, I'm, in this case, our union with Christ basically means that we have died, spiritually speaking. Now, this is a very important. It doesn't mean that we died physically, right? Because you and I are still here, as far as we can tell, uh, that we're still here physically. But somehow, something has changed inwardly. We're not the same person that we used to be in, in Christ. Spiritually speaking, the man that I was prior to my faith in Christ is no longer alive today. He's dead. My old sinful self has deceased. That rebellious person that hated God, that hated man, no longer stands before you today. That is what he used to be. That is what I was. That fearful, guilty, ashamed individual who stood before God, condemned, is now buried. That's not me. The one who was blind, the one who was deaf, the one who was dumb to everything heavenly, that fool, that weakling who despised every aspect of the knowledge and wisdom of God, and who is entirely impotent to carry out any of his will, he's now pushing daisies. He's gone. He no longer is alive. And frankly, I'm not upset about it in the least. I'm very glad for it. There's no way that I would ever go back to that again. I say good riddance to him. Let him die. Let his flesh rot until... I have no intention of ever holding a funeral service or a memorial service for that heartless old man. He's not worth it. There's nothing in him that ever did anything good. There's nothing worth paying respects to. He's dead, and I'm so glad he's dead. There could never be a celebration of life for him. Not a single thing he ever did was good or worthy of God. Rotten to the core, vain, vile, wicked in every way. Honestly, if I were to hold a funeral service for my old self, I'm pretty sure no one would show up. Because he didn't care about anybody but himself. I think God is dead. But especially given the fact that he needs to die in order for me to be born again. For you see, the, the very moment that I died to my old sinful self, I was reborn in the image of Christ. Of course, I'm not speaking about reincarnation here. <laughs> um, in fact, that word literally means I'm re-fleshed. I have a new flesh. I have a new body, if you will. That's not at all what we're saying. But rather that I have a new person who's alive within me, and that person is Christ. The Apostle Peter says that all believers uh, that have put their faith in Christ are like newborn babes. They're crying out for spiritual milk. They're longing for the Word of God for the first time. Thus, instead of holding a funeral service, which I would have no desire to do, maybe I should hold a baby shower for myself, right? I'm a really big baby. And it's interesting, if you think about it, in many countries around the world, especially those that did not come from a Christian background, particularly those who come from you know, Hindu background or Muslim background or what have you, when they come to faith in Christ, there's a very common tradition that they take on a new name, a new Christian name, because they see themselves as a new person, a new creation. It is sort of like a baby shower. Of course, Paul isn't 
always using the term baby like Peter did in that one instance, but rather, I'm a new man. I'm a new self. I'm a new image. I'm a new creation, a new creature. And it's important that we understand this new self and in, in, in what it means and what it doesn't mean. First of all, we need to talk about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that there's an entirely foreign person who now stands before you in the sense that some sort of alien species is here now. Uh, one of my favorite movies as a kid was The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You guys remember that one? There are a couple different versions of it. I think the first one was out in the 1950s. But in that case, an alien life form had come to earth and began to replicate the physical traits, the memories, and even the particular characteristics and the personalities of the individuals so that they still looked exactly the same and sometimes sounded similar to them, but usually like a dog or cat could tell the difference. Like, you know, that's not him. You know, get really upset about it. You imagine if you became a Christian, all of a sudden dogs and cats started treating you differently. But that's not what the Scripture is teaching. You're not an alien species. You're not an entirely different person that had nothing in common with the previous person. It's still you. It's just a recreated you. It's a renewed you in that regard. In fact, the Scripture never teaches any aspect of annihilation for anything in this world. The world is not going to be annihilated. It's going to be redeemed. It's going to be renewed. It's going to be reborn. But unlike original uh, in, in the creation account, where first you have the habitation that is created and then the inhabitants put into it, this, way, this time it's the inhabitants that are reborn first and then later the habitation, you see. But the point is nothing is going to be annihilated. All of it will be reborn. Thus, some things about us remain the same, even though we are new. If you think about it, if you were an introvert prior to coming to faith in Christ, you're likely going to be an introvert after coming to faith in Christ. The difference is you will be a renewed introvert. You will begin to learn to look outside of yourself and to love others, but yet you'll still have tendencies that will not be like that other person who was extroverted all along. It will not be the same. The same way, whatever your sense of humor was before coming to Christ, you'll have the same sense of humor or lack of humor, as some of you, but it will be a renewed sense of humor where you're no longer using your humor to tear others down, but rather to build them up. And you start to see the joy of life and can laugh over the simplest of things. It doesn't change. All of your other eccentricities that make you you, your uniqueness will still be a part of who you are as a Christian, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, it will be redeemed. It will be made better. It will now be based upon love and a principle of life rather than death. Nevertheless, there are clearly certain attributes of the old man that no longer will be a part of who you are. The old man was egocentric to the core, unable to love God, unable to love neighbor. But now the new man is Christocentric, Christ-centered in every aspect of his life. It's learning to develop that, learning to grow in the knowledge of that, but yet it's a different principle altogether at work within him. The old man had a dreadful fear of the judgment of God and as a result had no desire to hear anything of the law of God. The new man, very confident of the Lord's return, is excited, praying that he would come back quickly. And as a result, he loves the law, wants to hear it. He knows it's the wisdom from heaven, wants to grow 
in his ability to keep that law. It's changed. Whereas the old man was enslaved to sin and spiritually dead to God because of his transgressions, the new man is a servant of righteousness, fully alive to God because of Christ's perfections. Totally different. Which means if you're in Christ, you're not what you were, but are now a new creature. Entirely new. You used to be an unrighteous person. You used to be a sexually immoral person. You used to be an adulterer, a homosexual, an idolater, a thief, a drunkard, a gossip, and the like. But now, you're a righteous person. Chosen, holy, and beloved. Now you're a friend of God. Your identity is different because of this new life principle within you because of your union with Christ Jesus. And through this newfound identity in Christ, we now have resources at our disposal to walk in a worthy manner before the Lord. We now can keep in step with the Spirit of God. We now can grow in godliness. We now can offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God as a spiritual act of worship. We can do these things. We couldn't before, but now we can. Really and truly, we can. Of course, we're not likely to see those changes overnight. We've explained that before. I think I shared with you the, uh, the interesting account when I was a young kid. I knew that when someone became a Christian that there ought to be a difference. And so when my sister made a profession of faith before church when she was a teenager, I remember very vividly, I, I was three years younger than her, and I think she was about 13, so I would have been about 10, and we got in the car, and immediately we started fighting about something. And in my theological self back then, I said to her, See, you're no different at all. And in, in a partial way, I was right, on the surface at least. There was no difference at all. From my perspective, she had not changed a bit. But from God's perspective on that day, she was an entirely different person. A new principle was indwelling her. A new person was inside of her. And she was needing to work that out. And she did. I did, before my sister passed away, I saw many, many evidences of her faith. So what difference does it make, this new creation? It makes all the difference in the world. If we see ourselves as enslaved to sin, we will continue to practice sin on a regular basis. If we honestly think that we're no different than we were before, then we really have no hope of change at all. If we honestly think that there's nothing that has changed, nothing will change. On the other hand, if we rightly understand that we have been renewed in the image of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, then there's no stronghold in our lives that can withstand God's holy war. Nothing can withstand it because there's a new power, a new life at work within us, and it makes all the difference. Just last week, our presbytery approved a, a statement to change our book of church order, which I know is a very boring-sounding book, but it's a very important one that we use to help determine whether a man can serve as a pastor in our particular denomination. 
And the passage that we approved at our presbytery was this. It reads this way. Careful attention must be given to this man's practical struggle against sinful actions, as well as to his persistent sinful desires. The candidate must give clear testimony of his reliance upon his union with Christ and the benefits thereof by the Holy Spirit, depending on this work of grace to make progress over sin and actually to bear fruit. For though imperfection will remain, the candidate should be able to testify to the work of the Holy Spirit in his progress in holiness. The reason why we're making this statement originally came from, there was a pastor in our denomination who, who no longer is in our denomination who had made a, a number of statements in, in the past calling himself a homosexual Christian. And he put the sin of homosexuality into a category all its own and basically said that this one particular sin is not merely a part of the old man, but still a part of his new man. And as a result, there are desires that he has in the new man that are not meant to go away and that shouldn't go away. And as you can imagine, that that causes some great consternation for many of us who actually hold to the, the scriptural principles here. Instead of seeing himself as a new creation in Christ, with new desires in this way, he could only see his old self and he gave up trying to make any progress whatsoever in it. And so we wrote a statement, not just for homosexual. Again, I always have to be careful because I do think some people think that I'm always going after homosexuals. I'm not going after homosexuals, just so you know, okay? I'm going after any person who says that there's a sin that Christ cannot overcome. Anyone who says, I'm not struggling with this anymore because this is who I am. I say, that's a lie of the devil. It's not true. Don't care what the sin is. You can tell me that you're gossip. You'll always be a gossip. I'll say, that's a lie of the devil. You will not be. If Christ has become your Savior and you're in Christ Jesus, you can make progress in holiness. You can make progress in the faith. You can put your gossip to death. You can put all of these sins to death. It doesn't happen overnight. But there should be progress in the faith. And it will be progress in the faith. It's guaranteed to you because of the new life that is in you because you are a new creation. You have to believe that. For faith in Christ is not simply a faith in justification. I think we, most of us get that concept that through the blood of Christ, I'm saved. He saves wicked people, declares them to be holy. They get to go to heaven. But there's more to it than that. He also, through that same union with Christ, also assures us of sanctification by the Holy Spirit that we can grow as Christians. That even though you were a wicked person when you came to faith in Christ, you ought not to be a wicked person going forward. Going forward, you now are called a saint. Now start living like one, he says. And you can do that through your union and communion with Christ Jesus. Through Christ... We can grow in godly desire, and we can renounce our old sinful passions. We can, and we will. We can put them to death. We can make progress in the faith. If you read through Paul's epistles, you can't miss this. It's a, he says it again and again and again. After he explains to you, generally in most epistles, the first few chapters are all of what Christ has done for you. He then tells you, because you're in union with Christ, because you've died, because you're a new man, take off the clothes of the old man. Put on the clothes of the new man. You can do this. You don't have to be a liar anymore. You can tell the truth. 
You don't have to be lazy anymore. You can work. You don't have to steal. You can give. All of these things, every one of these patterns that he's putting on, he's saying, this is something you now can do through your union in Christ Jesus. Because Christ indwells us, we have a tremendous spiritual power at work within us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present moment, in this present age. Titus 2 assures us of that, that we can do that. So don't believe for a moment the devil's lie when he says to you, you will never change. You can never get better. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It's not true. You can make progress in the faith. Even if you've tried and failed a thousand times, you are assured through the gospel of Jesus Christ that you will make progress. Even if that means you have to be humiliated all along, he will give you that principle of love. He will give you that powerful principle of holiness. Otherwise, why does the Holy Spirit enjoy you at all? What's his purpose? Why is he called the Holy Spirit? He's, he's called to make you holy. He indwells you to, to, to inhabit this temple of the body that we have to become holy. We can become holy. And it turns out that how we see ourselves and how we see God in, in, in this manner makes all the difference in our Christian walk. If we don't see ourselves rightly, we will not make progress. If we think that we are the same person that we were 20 years ago, we will never make progress. If we think we can't change, we will never make progress. It's as we honestly think that we are a new creation, that everything begins to change. Um, it says uh, sort of the Copernican revolution. Remember that? You know, the guy that always gets beat up because uh, he, he busted the church's view of the world where they thought that the earth was the center of the universe, but he proved to them that it was actually the sun was in the middle of the solar system and that the earth was revolving around that. I think it actually was probably a great humbling exercise for all of us, but at the same time, it works the same way in our Christian life. If you think that you're at the center of your Christian life and that you cannot change, that you'll never change, then you're wrong because you're not at the center. If, if, if it were all up to you, I'd say go ahead and pack up your bags and just call it a day because you can't change. Because you have no power to change. You have no wisdom to change. You have no love of God to make this difference. But if Christ is now in you, how can you not change? There's a new life principle at work within you. You can change and you will change because you're a new creature. Christ dwells within you. All things are now new. I want you to meditate upon that this week. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. I am a new creature. It's not just based solely upon our union with Christ, but also our communion with Christ. In other words, as we continue to seek Christ, that's when our mind begins to believe these things. And that's when we begin to walk in these things and believe that we can make this change. But it starts with us understanding first this essential doctrine in union with Christ Jesus. I am a new creature. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for anyone here who has been wrestling with sin and then got to the point where they just gave up and quit. Said, I can't change. It'll never be any different hopeless, 
bitter, full of doubt. I pray that you would use the word of God to bring new life. Give them new hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that knowing that we are under a new king, Christ Jesus, knowing that we are a part of a new community who knows how to love and can encourage us in this endeavor, but even more so that now we have a new person within us who loves you and draws us to you at every waking moment. Lord, we pray that you would help us to draw closer and closer in communion to Christ, that we might reflect the image of Christ and grow in holiness. Lord, only you can do these things. Help us to believe it in Jesus' name.